as a way in, I was so pissed. When I was reading this last night, I'm like, oh, my God, this whole fucking book has been an ad for – it's like a promo for being in time. Right? Like when, you, when you get to the last three lectures, it's like, oh, it turns out that being and time are the answer. And you're like, right, really? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm joking, obviously. But, yeah. A real question I have, and this has just been percolating in the back of my head. It was doing this with Hegel when we did the phenomenology, and it's doing this here, and it does it somewhat with Derrida. Why the fuck are they just, do they not use the word becoming? Like, they just don't. Yeah, I know. Right? Like, I mean, because that seems to me so clearly what each of these thinkers is after. Um, now, one would have to do work on the concept of becoming because it can't simply right. be a secondary and derivative component of being. Got it, right? right? Like, But we're doing work on being, so why not, right? Like... You right. know, like, why do these, why do these folks, what is, what am I missing? You know, and I, I feel like I've got to be missing something. I mean, was the word I mean, just not circulated, like, as a noun? Like, is it just the terminology? Because there's clearly a philosophy of movement here, and he, yes. he gets to that, I, that central idea of becoming. He just doesn't actually use the term. I don't even well, know what the German word would be. It, it, am I right? Term. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like, look, height is that sort of, you know, that that um, the suffix that, yeah, right. like to, to nominalize. Yeah, like you kind of do that work of the participle there. So, yeah, I don't know if yeah. I don't know if just English kind of affords that kind of language. But my understanding is that at least Deleuze gets the language of becoming from Bergson, and then it doesn't it really does. traffic before that. And so, you know, maybe the French language, you know, allows for right introduction right. of that i don't i, yeah. I but but yeah. like i mean to response to your question john is that you know hegel derrida and heidegger are all invested in something yeah i would say definitely something called becoming but they arrive at it in very different ways especially hegel very and heidegger and you know yeah. like lecture nine to me just like you know if, if i were going to try to sum it up quickly is that uh, Hegel was invested in the becoming of reason, the becoming like the movement of this sort of rationalized uh, under the, the movement yeah. of understanding. Right. And mm -hmm. Heidegger is more interested in a kind of becoming that happens in sort of, well, well, we'll talk about this, but he's more interested in a kind of becoming that is prior to the domination of the understanding yes. and the reason yes. and, and reason. And again, he's he's very clear that you know he you know he doesn't think that this whole um, rationalization thing is like a mistake or uh, um, you know somehow like no, that's right. You you do get but, the language he, of like progress and like you have to pass through that movement of rationalism or the enlightenment and thinking there is that kind of language of like development here and there which kind of seemed very hegelian at least at points right like the notion that well i got the to... opposite that that like that there's you know this prior thinking is not a proto thinking that it's not a thinking that hasn't yet you know sort of introduced reason to it is that right. I mean I, I really got the sense here is that the very act that the Greeks had access to something something called thinking that they sort of like developed this thinking and that it was in some ways destined to arrive at conceptual rational thinking mm -hmm. but the but that destiny that sort of that kind of progress well, I don't know what's what I call it that kind of development. 
um, in some fundamental ways covers over the engine that right. got it there. Obfuscates. Yeah. And then that, yeah, yeah, it obfuscates yeah. how it got there. And then, you know, it, that, then it's, it's, it's like still you can't av- go it's back still to available. it. It's still available yeah. in that thinking. Like right. one can reactivate yeah. it if one does the kind of thing that Heidegger yeah. is doing. So it's right. not yeah. like it's totally disappeared. But I, I agree. There's a sense of a, you know, con- like he says, you know, the Greeks think non-conceptually. Right. Yeah. They don't have concepts. Um, and I, I mean, I kind of, there, there's a way in which, at least for me, you know, we've talked so much about that sort of nostalgic dimension in here and the time, attempt to get an end run. I would say a little bit more sympathetic in this context mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason of like, okay, like there's a, I just wish you wouldn't say something like the Greeks. I just don't like those cultural, those big cultural claims. Like mm-hmm. I think that you can say there's a thinking in Aristotle um, that doesn't think thinking or that thinks thinking as the revealing and taking, the, the, the laying out and taking right. to heart. I think one can say that. Um, and and say like okay, in, there's something available in Aristotle that's that's just not as available in Aquinas or right. or whoever whoever else without making a big claim about the the Greeks thinking right. non-conceptual. Though I find it to be interesting that that Nietzsche, Deleuze do very similar things with with the Greeks, and you know not in the very typical way of like the Greeks were the paragon of of you yeah. know of, of rational thinking and that everything we have we've just inherited from them but more in terms of sort of like the singularity of a historical moment is that yeah. human activity converged in such and such a way in this very sort of small place in this you know particular time that enabled something and you know Deleuze I think is very careful to say like look that stuff has in some ways its origins in Babylon in the in the sort of like sure. Fertile Crescent area in Egypt but you still but you wouldn't call you know sort of um, uh, that kind of uh, astrology or or mysticism philosophy because it doesn't Converge in such and such a way. Something something new is expressed in, in a particular convergence in this moment. And, yeah. you know, from Heidegger's perspective, it seems like, and that convergence brought about another convergence that covered over this one. And Yeah. I, I do think know. that that looking back, though, does tend to lend itself to fe- a fetishizing. But, but again, like, you do need a point of departure. So, like, in the reaction against... Uh, the modern technologizing of thought, which Nietzsche, Deleuze, Heidegger all share a similar reaction to that. They all find a different mode of thinking in a similar place, right? In in that cultural moment, in that yeah. historical moment, in the Greeks. So it doesn't have to be a fetishizing of the Greeks. I just think Heidegger here and there, it does kind of lend itself to that mm-hmm. kind of disposition. But again, like in in these sections, I found that there was a wavering on that point where he was admitting that basically the modern epoch, the modern image of thought, is in some ways constitutive. That while it's different from the Greeks, we are now, we have to deal with the way that we relate and that mode of relating now as a constitutive in, in order to move past it or in order to transmute it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, well, that, he, he makes that claim with Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, right? right. It's like, even though these... You know, we're all caught up in this system and even, you know, the sort of like greatest, you know, antigens to systemic thought like Kierkegaard and, and Nietzsche are still caught up, caught up and tangled yeah. in it. Right. Right. But right. I don't think he thinks he is. 
Like, I think he thinks that of Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. I agree. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that he thinks that he has figured out how to activate the echoes of this proto... Not Again, it wouldn't be proto, but this other kind of... This mm-hmm. other kind of thinking within the ratio, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and one of the well, one it, of the it passion- couldn't be within the ratio though anymore, right? Like, I mean, well, that's, that, that's yes, what he's claiming that's... that Nietzsche and Kierkegaard do. But I don't know how he could be could claim that he gets outside of it. I, I want to anticipate something because I know it's happening, and and you know, talking about an anxiety events, I've got to like get it out there before you know I got to kind of know when it happens. So. Uh, John, I know your response to this. I already know your trajectory on this because you're going to make a claim about how concepts for Heidegger are the bad guy and that concepts sort of like still a proper kind of thinking and we need to kind of undo them. And you're going to point to Deleuze's difference in repetition wherein concepts sort of like are the domesticators of difference. But then you're going to jump to uh, what is philosophy philosophy, and you're going to say, (laughs) wait a second, a particular kind of engagement with... (laughs) with with concepts can actually be a kind of thinking and you know and i and i and i follow that but okay i just got to get that out on the table first (laughs) just as i know that's what's gonna happen saves us time saves us time i I wasn't planning on doing that but i i I certainly have done that (laughs) i I don't know i don't care if you were planning on doing it or not it was was going to happen yeah yeah it was inevitable it was Mm -hmm. inevitable but you know, this is going to lead us to a, you know, like, how do we take up, you know, now that we are sort of embroiled in concepts and, and you know, like, I think Hegel is the, the best thinker on this is that, look, there is a, you know, even within the sort of rigidify, like, like reifying nature of the understanding to create and reproduce concepts, there is a becoming within that. So then, like, how does one engage, how does one think Concepts that that would be like a question here is you know right. rather than distinguish ratio conceptual thinking from this sort of more active thinking how does one active or how does one become involved with or how does one as you know he puts it how does one um, not grasp concepts but right. Uh, right. Uh, you know t- like. Uh, let, let them, them be lie before. Let, yeah, let, let them lie let them before lie. and take them up in one's take heart to, to heart. think the being of the, the 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 being of the concept. Right. Yeah. I, I, and I do think there is an investment in that later, or I don't know when Deleuze writes what is philosophy, but in that particular mode where he's not just saying that concepts are the bad guy. He's saying that if you have a particular orientation towards conceptual thinking, you can allow concepts to play with each other and form linkages and do different types of things other than that telos to grasp, right? So it's like, and I think Heidegger is saying here, at least in a couple places, right? I'm on 227 towards the end where he's talking about um, dualisms or duality between particular beings and capital, capital B being. That's the whole, that's the being in time. Right, right. Exactly. Ontological. That the duality of the two must be given beforehand in such a way that this duality itself does not as such receive specific attention. So he's talking about that kind of reified version of conceptuality of the modern time where you don't, there's presuppositions that allow you to have concepts grasp the real, right? And it's trying to think that movement and maybe getting underneath or behind or before that movement, letting it lie before you 
is, is sort of the aim here. That's what allows concepts to play rather than simply to reify the world or experience. So um, that's exactly the point. They actually, I think that I wasn't going to go the direction that Nathaniel uh, thought even though I have done it many times, but, but because, because I am interested in this, this duality thing, and I really, because no one uses becoming, and I don't want to see that as simply an error or a, a missed, a, something missed, I'm like, I kind of wanted to immerse myself more in the being question here, mm-hmm. like, and just sort of think through being. And that, where, where you just pointed to, Nate, and the continuation of that in the next page, is like, that was a place where I really, uh, that, that I thought was really important. Yeah. The, the presumption that the distinction, the duality between the two, being and beings, um, must be given beforehand in such a way that this duality itself does not as such receive specific attention. So we're just, the, dis, the distinction of beings, of being, big B being, and, and the ontocontological distinction yeah. is kind of given. And then he said, the same is true for all tr- transcendence. When we pass from beings to being, our passage passes through the duality of the two. And this is the thing that sounds incredibly not Heideggerian to me, this next sentence. But the passage never first creates the duality. I would think the passage would be exactly what creates the duality. Right, right. Right, like, the, in other words, the movement of, yeah. you know, forging is, so, like, because in my version, there would be this performative movement that yeah. induces retrospectively the notion that there was a duality beforehand. Right. But he said the duality, the duality is already in use. It is the thing most used and thus most usual in all our stating and ideas and all we do. And, and so I, I feel like, and this is a real question that I have, because I sometimes feel as if my response, or I was going to say solution in quotation marks, but my solution to this problem is if you just give up the idea that thinking is representation, like if you just say that's just wrong, like inaccurate right. or however you want to understand wrong, and you think of it performatively, all of this problem goes away, right? It's just all of it. And I'm like, what, what am I missing in saying that? Like, I, because it just seems like such an easy solution yeah. where you say, not that the passage never f- first, cre- you say like, the, no, the passage is what creates the duality between big B being and yeah. little b beings. And what you get then is the movement of, thinking in the sense of letting it lie before you and taking to heart the right. dual component of that is what produces the distinction. Yeah. And the reason I, the only reason I can come up with that he doesn't want to say that is because that then says that the Greeks created the technological culture, right? That's where yeah. it leads. In other yeah. words, it's not, it wasn't a, there's not like a kernel to be reactivated where we could somehow get back. It's like, no, no, no. The reactivation is going to produce more technological or representational, right. like, because in other words, you get into way more of a vicious circle yeah. if if you say the thing that I thought Heidegger, I mean, my God, the passage doesn't create the distinction. Like, that's all he ever says is the passage yeah. is the thing that creates the distinction. He does make that claim that that Greek thinking and that sort of originary, authentic, essential sense is this sort of like precursor for techno rational thinking i mean mm-hmm. you know, this is on 213 and that that second paragraph right after he's like you know kierkegaard and, and nietzsche you know were sort of caught up in this um the systemization this which is effectively like you know medieval scholasticism but that next paragraph 
But we must give uh, attention to another matter. The interpretation of Greek thinking that guided by modern conceptual thinking not only remains inappropriate for Greek thinking, it also keeps us from hearing the appeal of the problematic of Greek thinking, and thus from being held to a constantly more urgent summons to go on questioning. We must not fail, of course, to reflect on why and in what way it is precisely the thinking of the Greeks that essentially prepared the development of uh, thinking in the sense of forming conceptual ideas. Indeed, Greek thinking was bound to suggest that development. Uh, and, and keep on going here, but on the path which we are following here, the important thing for us is to first see that our modern way of representational ideas, as long as it stubbornly holds to this way, blocks its own access to the beginnings and thus the fundamental characteristic of Western thinking. The translations alone make the point clear. See, I mean, this, it seems like... This is, like, look, look, just to jump in there, just yeah. how non-Nietzschean that is, right? Like, I mean, and, and to me, that's everything is this distinction right here, which is that for him... Uh, the the translation that's gone from the Greek wo mode of thinking to those yeah. blocks our access to yeah. the previous one. Whereas for Nietzsche, it's just another articulation. It's just another, like an interpretation. It's, it's just folding it from this point to this point, and, right. and then you fold it from another point to another point. Like yeah. No, but this, there's this a, a historical claim that I follow there. I mean, like, think about, well, so that basically, you know, the the full development of this sort of Greek, way of thinking uh, makes the very thing like in, in its expression in ratio sort of representational thinking yeah. bars the way from the thing that Genesis did right I mean in the same way that like you know in uh, Nietzsche's version of, of uh, um, interpretation you know sort of like that physiological notion of interpretation is you know the taking hold of say like the ear the eye or the nose by the human organism like in like like how are we supposed to know you know what set of relationships that thing was caught up in beforehand you'd have to run some kind of like weird right, genealogical the huge difference and this is the key difference is that for heidegger that origin remains fundamental for nietzsche it's just another moment yeah. right? right so like so i i get where nietzschean interpretation you could say blocks access because the thing is something else but it's not who needs the access like you don't right. need to get to the accent, whereas for Heidegger you do, right? Like yeah. if there is something that is sort of lost or covered over or not as available or not laying in plain view or something mm -hmm. because of the ratio or subsequent interpretations of the laying before right. and taking to heart. I mean, but so I like, think, like, take. Uh, sorry, but sorry. Yeah, no, just the the general existence of the genealogy of of, of morals. Right. Would be sort of like, you know, all of these utilitarians, all of these sort of like progressive evolutionary thinkers like have gotten this wrong to sort of assume that there's some kind of telos here that everything is progressing toward. And I'm going to do a genealogy that shows the weird twisty turny ways in which, you know, this this history of appropriations, this history of uh, uh, interpretations has has sort of set up and, you know, like I would say for Nietzsche, there is a style of Greek thinking, a style of Greek living that is in some ways inaccessible to us. Now, right. like, I understand he doesn't say, and we should go back and live there, you know, like his response is, you know, we, you know, there's, um, uh, we should invent, maybe invent with it, right, rather than recover or reaccess uh, it. But there does, like, the very function of a genealogy does seem to, like, 
be aimed at some kind of 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 uh, kind of like a historical recovery project, does it not? But I don't agree. So so that's where to me, like, what's the solution to birth of tragedy? It's not like we need to get back to the Dionysus. The Socrates, yeah, right. Like we need, we need to, to so, invent so with that. It. Right. right. So, I mean, that's a huge difference. Like, it's so, not a recovery yeah. project in right. Nietzsche. Exactly. Right. It's like, yeah. okay, but, let's, let's push this even further. Like, let's, you know, here, here is the trajectory in the line. Let's, let's push it further as opposed to, you know, our way is blocked and we right. get back and reactivate it and we will find, I mean, that's that sense, again, nostalgia or whatever. I mean, it's, it, there is, to me, I just read a very, I, I take your point and I think that that point about the, the architecture of the genealogy, there's a way in which he is sort of saying, like, look, these basic sort of affirmative, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, resentful dynamics right. are, like, these are the origins that set everything else in motion, right? So mm-hmm. everything that you think is, like, Christian niceness is mm-hmm. resentment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, and, and that's that's the engine of the thing. But the goal is not then to, like, oh, well, let's recover the truly affirmative way from some prior version it is like let's now it's affirm it trans right like what is it yeah what does it mean to now affirm right. means like to take the thing as it is and to rearticulate to reinterpret to hook it to something else and make it right. do something else but the claim the claim functions similarly though like even if it's not an historical recovery project in nietzsche there is still a blockade or like there's a blockage in our thinking that disallows certain modes of relating and like think yeah. about the revenge against difference or even the in truth and lies how conceptuality masks or kind of covers over an irreducible difference that um, mm-hmm. is kind of outside the, the the movement of subjectivity or conceptuality right it's like but, but for Nietzsche and for Heidegger here the interesting thing for me is that the blockade is not simply something you can do away with Right. This is a right. constitutive blockade in some ways that yeah. in a, almost in a Hegelian sense, you have to pass through in order to get to the overman or in order to get to, you know, whatever Heidegger's poetic mode of engagement. Right. Like this. You have to take the blockade seriously, uh, I think. I just don't think it's a blockade in Nietzsche. Like, I, I don't think it's a blockade. It's just a development. It's a change. Change. It's not like. Right. But it's a problem. Yeah. It's well, I would say it, it is a blockade, but not a problem for Nietzsche in that, like, if you don't need to go around it or through it or back to it or reaccess something, then the blockage isn't a problem. But it's still a blockage. In other words, like, you know, there's tr- transformation is never like a smooth line where you can move back and forth. It's like, you know, the, the very um, uh, mechanism of becoming, the very mechanism of the of futurity or the overman is to obscure its its like and to blockade its its origin points. Now for Heidegger that seems to be a problem. For Nietzsche that doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, like, you know, Nietzsche's more interested in like saying like, you know, look at this history of, of appropriations and I'll call it a genealogy. Never want to go back to one of them. But now look, right. Heidegger Heidegger's at a, at a different historical moment. I can see why it would be more appealing to say like, shit, you know, like this, 
essential ambiguity, like the, uh, which for me, I, I just, you know, it, it just became increasingly clear to me that essence is futurity here, is potentiality yeah. here. And he doesn't like, I don't think he wants to go back to the Greeks to stay there. It just feels like he's like, we took the wrong fucking turn, man. Like if this is, you know, if this was sort of like an intersection, we took a left and we should have taken a right or frankly, any other direction that isn't this direction because affirming this ratio instrumentalization thing that's you know i mean holocaust right climate destruction you yeah. know like the reduction like the hyper reduction of all thinking like I'll, I'll take any other direction just not this one this one's fucked and given mm -hmm. where heidegger's coming from i understand that impulse now i think if you're going to take up a, a Nietzschean or delusian right like there's no going back and the only chance you have to sort of mitigate or you know deal with these you know i don't like i don't think the or nietzsche like holocaust or fascism any any more than heidegger does but like you can't go back you only can affirm and invent so as to transmute and let me try a different angle into it. I mean, and, and I really am, I guess, bent on distinguishing what I, the Nietzschean genealogical project, and and not in the interest of thinking that Nietzsche is a cool guy, but because I just read something different going mm -hmm. on there. That, for instance, uh, even though Nietzsche obviously talks, you know, the origin of good and whatever, he just doesn't have any interest in origins. He doesn't have mm -hmm. any interest, like, so, for instance, his origin thing is just another interpretation, right? right? Mm -hmm. And he, f he foregrounds, it's like, so I can talk about the Greeks, but I might, I could be talking about somebody, else. like, it doesn't matter, like, the Greeks right. are just a place. They are not yes. the thing that started Western yes. thinking down a trajectory, you know, it's just, this is just a place, uh, and there are other places that have different dynamics to them. Um, but right. there's nothing special about the origin moment that makes it the fundamental character of Western thinking. Or, I mean, think of the other the other things that follow from this, right? Like the problematic, obviously, the famous sentence in here, right? Where like India and Africa, what is it? India and China in have China. a philosophy, right? Well, that's like, not that's not the claim. Is that uh, India and Chinese philosophy? I mean, he definitely it's not philosophy. No, he said. Well, it's not it's philosophy. the same. It's the same. It's conceptual philosophy. It's the same kind of philosophy you get in the West. No, it's not. Where's let's find the passage. <laughs> it says there is okay on one two twenty four, the style of all Western European philosophy, and there is no other. Neither a Chinese nor an Indian philosophy is determined by this duality beings in being. Philosophy. Okay, never mind. I read this differently. Right, like. Uh, I read that as Western. saying that the, 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 problem, the problem of Western philosophy is the problem of all philosophy. But, yeah, no, I just misread that. No, there's no Chinese Oops. and Indian philosophy, right? Yeah. Like it's, and, and for the reasons, I get the historical reasons that he wants to think that, but that's where the Greeks set us on a path for Heidegger. For Nietzsche, the Greeks were just a moment, right? Like, right. Uh, and not a moment in the, the evolution of spirit, just a moment, like, mm -hmm. and there's something interesting that one can now interpret and activate in them, but not because something was lost by, you know, in the, in the 2000 years between them, just because it's available there. It's available elsewhere, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's available in Napoleon. It's available in, you know, for, for Nietzsche, right? It's available in mm -hmm. Wagner's music. But again, like, you know, Deleuze is really careful to say that philosophy, like, you know, in a sense, there is no non-Greek philosophy 
even for Deleuze. That, yeah, no, I agree. I, know, I agree. But the sense of it is really, really different in uh, to me here and in and Deleuze's. Like, why? Yeah, I mean, the geo philosophy. They're like, why here? Right? Like, why yeah. here? And and then why at this time? Mm-hmm. Why not in which, China? Uh, Right. Well, just to say, which isn't, I mean, I think there, there is a connotation here that, you know, philosophy is better and therefore anything that doesn't have philosophy, you know, like is, is worse off. And I, but you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what Deleuze is going on with Deleuze. And I'm not even sure that it's what is going on here. Oh, I don't, think that's, I don't like, think that's what's, I don't think, I don't think it's a better or worse thing. I think it's yeah. the claim of the duality between being and beings. Right. Sets that off, fundamental like, duality, right? But 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 in, in inaugurating performing that particular uh, duality does set something on a path. Now it's not a predetermined path that can only go one direction, you know. Like, but it does set a direction, and it does kind of like pre-shape the available turns, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's like you know, every time you take a step forward from that duality, it's like you got six different choices, but not a million. Right. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's at least to me, it just feels like I, I don't think he's privileging this here as sort of better. He's saying what counts as philosophy begins from an unrecognized mm-hmm. distinction between beings and being, yeah. right? Like it, that that's where it begins. And so there's lots of other things that we could loosely call thinking and we could call, you know, a, attentiveness or whatever, but they're not philosophy, and they're not philosophy because they don't begin with that unrecognized problematic. It's not like Parmenides said, hey, I'm going to pursue the question. Like Parmenides is the one who raised and didn't answer, right, mm-hmm. or, or, or didn't sort of spend time with. Like right above that, the, the Chinese Indian quote, it's like, you know, he just quotes Parmenides saying, take the heart, the eon, is participle, and with it, take heed of the Asai and eon, the being of beings. However, no further inquiry and thought is given to the duality itself. Mm-hmm. Of being and beings, neither to the nature of the duality, to that nor to that nature's origin. So, the Greeks both raise it, and and don't address it. Right. Um, right. And that has determined, you know, that distinction is determined. But that is being in time, right? That is the yeah. thing that he, like, how do you ask the, how do you even ask the ontological yeah. question, beings and and big B being, right? Like, how do you pose that? And so mm-hmm. that's where I, I really do think he sees himself in the same way that Hegel does, right? He sees himself as the completion of a lineage. And that, to me, is a huge tonal difference between Nietzsche does not see that, right? Like, he doesn't see himself as completing a lineage. He sees himself as offering a direction that's different th- than others. You would have to see him being incredibly facetious then in this sort of, like, all of the ways that he amplifies the importance of ambiguity and potentiality and, you know, like the main maintenance of the questioning. Like, you know, he couldn't see himself, uh, like, he couldn't be Heidegger and see himself as the completion of anything. Because uh, here's what I would say, here's what I would say on the ambiguity question, like, that's gone from this conversation. It's gone. Right? He doesn't talk about ambiguity in relation to being at all. Right? The being stuff was all in the what we would now call the ontic realm. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it wasn't in that sort of baseline question of the ontic ontological. That's that's not uh, that dualism isn't something that would be. I don't think he would call it ambiguous. It is constitutive and fundamental. Um, no, I would say it's, it's constitutively ambiguous. The being big, you know, beings, the ontic uh, on. on 
yeah, the Ontic Ontos. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Big right. B being, little B beings. Like, right. no, that is, that dynamic is a constitutive ambiguity. But right? I, I mean, think like, it I think it would be ambiguous. Because ambiguous, I mean, the, like, the necessity of, th- here's what I agree with. The necessity of thinking them together can't work in an instrument. It can't provide an answer. Like, yeah, I agree right. with that, right? Except for, here is the answer. One must try to think these together. You know what I mean? So it's still, it's not, it's like, here yeah. is the problem. Like, the, the problem is this. The problem is being in time, right? Like, that one must think these, think the being and beings uh, somehow together. I, I mean, I, I'm using ambiguous, like, he talked a lot about ambiguity earlier, but it was never in relation to being, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- that that terminology just falls out when we well, get to It was in relation to question. thinking, Right, ambiguity, yeah. the, the ambiguous essence of thinking. And I think yeah. you could extend that and say that the duality between capital B being and beings or singularities, the effect of that duality is some sort of ambiguity. And the tendency mm-hmm. of conceptual thinking is to elide that ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So the, the, that yes. as a presupposition, the duality itself as a fundamental presupposition or assumption of modern thinking that actually in some ways engenders the ambiguity as its effect, right? Because of all of the assumptions that are loaded into it and the way it allows us to advance our thinking, right? In quotes, like the whole movement of thinking because it stems from the dualism or the opposition. And again, this is a Hegelian sort of point. Yeah, yeah. Because the the opposition is in a sense primary as as a function of modern thinking, that's where the ambiguity follows from that. Right. And the, the ambiguity actually is a part of the masking of itself. <laughs> Does that make any I, sense? I, I, I got a bit lost. No, there, that makes the, sense. It, that makes sense. Yeah. But, but what I, I took, at least from the first half of what you were saying, is that... The, the, why does he make such a big deal about being a sort of being a vacuous term, you know, is because, you know, it has been so instrumentalized in our in our language and our conceptual fabric for engaging the world is that like being has no real meaning. It's so self present, so self obvious to us that things are to the point where, you know, attaching the word are or is or whatever else seems, you know, superfluous. And, mm-hmm. you know, it seems to me that the, the, the return to the uh, um, Antic Antos dynamic is for the sake of undermining that obviousness and reactivating a certain kind of primary ambiguity that there needs to be like that relationship is uh, becomes, you know, r- rationalized when it becomes determined, but it must always maintaining attention. And this is where I was waiting for him to use the language of becoming. And this is the closest he gets to the language of becoming is that, you know, like in some ways, independent of thinking, being and uh, being, being that, that, that fundamental ambiguity is, is operative. That is the food for thought. Now, like something else happens when thinking engages, it becomes involved with it when it's alive before yeah. and taken up to heart. But like that sort of activation of the world around us as that kind of tension can only exist when it becomes 
where, when it is taken up as fundamentally, constitutively ambiguous. And I think he gets at this at the best uh, in, in lecture 10, where he starts engaging for the first time you know, that, that participle, the, 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 the participle of, the present participle of being. So the very bottom of 219 and then the top of 220 when he starts thinking about the relationship between blossoming, gleaming, yeah, yeah, um, resting. I mean, if you don't mind, you know, so uh, I'll just read that section. This is the bottom of 219. A grammatical reflect, a reflection is needed to make the point clear. What reservations uh, there are concerning the extent of its validity will become obvious in what follows. The word being, by its structure, sounds and speaks like the terms blossoming, gleaming, resting, aching, and so on. The grammatical name of long-standing words so formed is participle. They participate. They take part in two meanings. But the essential point is not that there are only two meanings instead of three or four, but that the two meanings refer to each other. Each of the two meanings is one of the pair. The word blossoming can mean given uh, the given something that is blossoming, the rose bush or the apple tree. Uh, if the word is intended in this sense, it designates uh, what stands in bloom. That's the noun. Does it, the noun the that's the noun. noun. Yeah, that's the noun. Um, but it can also mean the act of blossoming. Right, designates the given something uh, that is blossoming and intends this something by itself as that which uh, blossoming is fitting and proper. The word blossoming, if it means, for instance, the rose here, has almost represents the proper name for what it uh, designates. In this linguistic form, it has the character of the substance of a noun, blossoming, and so on, so the noun. But blossoming may also mean the act of blossoming in contrast with the act of wilting. Uh, what is meant is not the given plant that happens to be blossoming or wilting, but blossoming, wilting. Here, blossoming is used in the verbal sense. And this is almost, actually, just rereading that right there almost gives me a better understanding of why he doesn't use the language of becoming, because it would ling too heavily into that second verbal notion of, of uh, of, of blossoming, where it is only the transformation of the thing, but it doesn't speak at all to kind of like a version of like a duration of the being of the being either. So it's both the becoming of the being and the being of the being. It's both self-transformation and and self-instantiation. It's both right. uh, the molecular and the molar at the same time. Right. Yeah. And if you look at, I mean, like actually the, the language of the molecular and the molar sort of operative uh, uh, in, in fundamental uh, attention ambiguity there, like that assuages my, like the, you know, my concerns for the way that he uses being there, that they can't, like it is, it is pure um, potential. I mean, it is pure potentiality. Right. Not and without, tia, without tilia, without and, a telos. And thinking that the simultaneity of, becoming in our words and being right that that yeah. simultaneity is key and we've yeah. talked about that in several episodes um how thinking basically like because john you raised earlier like that part where he talks about the passage not coming before the duality right and now that's kind of an odd conceptual uh intonation there because you would right. think at least in in terms of his uh you know the people that come after him derrida etc right Difference would seem to be, if we're going to use slightly different terminology, difference would seem to be primary to and constitutive of identity or representation. Mm -hmm. But I think even for, for Derrida, right, there's, you can reverse the copula. And it's just, it's almost equally important to do that, where 
Identity also is primary to and constitutive of difference. So neither one of those can stand on their own. And I think that might be one of Heidegger's points here, right, is that you have to think that that simultaneity or that that kind of recursiveness within the process, right, being becoming, right, they're constantly folding on top of one another. Now, the um, one target that I, that, you know, I've been following what Nate said is that, you know, I think usually critiques that come in the form of some kind of like becoming package are aimed at substantial notions of being, right. like being as underlying substratum, underlying substance, underlying sort of like self, self-presence, self right? right? And within that lineage, you know, the language of becoming, I think, makes a whole lot more sense. But the passage by which Heidegger is taking here just sort of like shoots down that substantial notion of being, I think, from the get-go, and yeah. that there is something far less determinant about being from the beginning that, you know, that critique of becoming doesn't even need to be, doesn't even need to be introduced. Let me just rewind for a second, because this, this passage was confusing to me, because I don't understand the first sense, like in the simplest way, I don't understand the noun version. Like, I don't think that you ever use blossoming, gleaming, and resting to refer to something that is blossoming, gleaming, and resting, right? Like Yeah, I thought know, that was a little odd. Like, I, they don't, don't function see... on their own as a noun, really. A right. blossoming. Like, I mean, I, I get you've nominalized yeah. a verb, right? right I get right. blossoming is a noun, right? Yeah, I understand yeah. that. Yeah. But, but it's a noun that refers to an action, which is right. the action right. of blossoming. It doesn't refer to... So he says, blossoming designates the given something that is blossoming. I'm like... Where you don't ever you say the flower is blossoming. You don't right. say. You could say the tree is blossoming. Look at that blossoming. Right. That's right. You know that's fine. Blossoming in that case doesn't refer to the tree. Like why do you have to have the word tree? Is because blossoming doesn't refer to the thing. Like I don't. I just like at that point I just didn't get the distinction that he's making. Like in its linguistic form, it has the character of a substantive noun. Like I, I mean, it does. It has this character of a substantive noun referring to an action. And if that's the point he wants to make, I get that. But what it doesn't do is, is if the word is intended in this sense, it designates what stands in bloom. No, it doesn't. Right? It doesn't I, designate what. That stands makes sense in bloom. to me. Like it. I mean, wow. to talk about the blossoming tree. Like, it would be all too sort of like surgical to say, no, it's only the flowers that are blossoming. Because then you're like, well, you know, like it's spring. Every like tree on this street is blossoming. And so like when I say the blossoming tree, do I mean this tree or that tree? It's like, no, like blossoming is now like a substantial uh, uh, like attribute of this – of the tree. Of like the there tree. Was a, right, yeah, of the tree. But of the tree. The tree is the substantive. Right, but but the but the tree has been constitutively like uh, or is is constituted by the blossoming, and if it's constituted, it can constituted if it's constituted by the blossoming, then the being of the tree has taken up blossoming as part of its being. Does that right. make sense? So in the sentence, the tree is blossoming. I, I still, I mean, I, I get, yeah, I get that. I get that. That's a, that's a little closer and helpful to me because I just think of the tree is blossoming. Blossoming there doesn't refer to the tree. It refers to the action of blossoming that is an attribute of the tree. 
Yeah. I think, but I think those are the two pathways. So just think about this is actually really fun because I think like we're actually doing the thinking of being, <laughs> right? Like in that sense, the tree is blossoming. We're thinking the is right there. Like, and, right, and right, right, right. I think there are two senses of using that word is. Like one is the yeah. is of the verb, right? Which is right. the tree is doing the action of blossoming. That's something that it's doing. That's and something the, that is this doing. This is what the thing is, is, you know, exactly. like as a blossoming. E, the is becomes the equal side, right? right. Like right. tree mm-hmm. equals blossoming, right? But no, I get it. That helps. That that helps. I can understand, especially when you when we add in the is, especially it helps me to distinguish like what the tree is is a blossoming, yeah, uh, right. Versus what the tree is doing is blossoming. I was taking yeah. it entirely in that second sense. So because I, I, I your ratio technical language has only yeah. allowed you to see it in terms of subject object, right? <laughs> and you had to reactivate that other sense of how, the, the so, being so of is. is. So, I mean, but contrast this then with Nietzsche, this is the lightning strikes, yeah. right? Like, um, whereas Nietzsche's claim is different there, which is the yeah. substantive is a bullshit occasion yeah. for the verb, yeah. right? Like the verb is everything for him. And right. the, sub, the substance is just a sort of residual who gives a fuck, you know? Um, so, so I think that you're right. Like what Heidegger is attempting to do is to give emphasis to both right. hinges um, yeah. And what Nietzsche wants to do, and I think what I want to do is to say that first hinge doesn't fucking matter. It's just a residual. Yeah. It's it's the it's the evil in mm-hmm. good, good and evil, right? It's the mm-hmm. residual after effect of an right. action. I mean, maybe you could think I, of it like the the reason the nominal needs to be kept as also partly constitutive of the verbal. The reason the verbal is not giving primary ontological status here, you could think of it like from the the like even cellular biology, right? Like what what's the autopoiesis or whatever? Yeah, autopoiesis. Where yeah. You you need at least at a base level something that functions like an identity in order to differentiate. So at least at a provisional um, level, ontologically or whatever, even just ontically, uh, you you kind of need the nominal, at, yeah. at least in that provisional sense, in order for there to be the verbal and vice versa. In order so, for the blossoming to take the tree, the tree needs to be taken as object, right? Or like to put this in terms of active reactive force, active force couldn't exist without reactive force because active yeah, force right. has, has to ex- exert its force on something else, forcing it into that nominal position, right? Mm. I mean, this yeah. is why I've become so increasingly interested in the molecular side or the molar side of the molar molecular because the realization that, you know, that nominal substantial notion is bullshit is only the first step. And then the second one is to say, all right, it's a specter, it's a ghost, it's a residual after effect, it's whatever else. And it still does something. Yeah, yeah no, I, I'm totally down with it doing so. I just feel like, I feel like if you go that way, you inevitably go down Hegel. Hegel's road right like I mean inevitably yeah and Mm -hmm. you're saying there are basically two distinct forces identity and difference right or sameness and you know whatever whatever terms you want to pick and they're in constant sort of war with one another and I feel like and that's the Hegel trajectory I feel like there's another trajectory which is there is only active force and because of because of that there is only reactive force for consciousness right like um and and so there's one Right, it's, it's yeah. the sort of monistic thing that's primary or fundamental in that sense, but it's not a thing. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you don't need an identity in order to uh, establish a difference. You just have pure movement all of the time whose residual effects are nominalizations. And I'm not dismissing the residual effects, and I'm not even dismissing the importance of those residual effects, but they're still secondary and derivative. Mm -hmm.